Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey Adapters, welcome back to a very special episode. This is the first in a three-part series I'm doing with the Trustees of Reservations. The Trustees is a conservation organization based in Massachusetts. The focus of this series is on coastal adaptation and conservation. Kicking off, we'll be focusing on Waysquee Beach, which is on Martha's Vineyard. I originally planned to travel to Massachusetts to record in person like I normally do, but with the onset of COVID-19, just about everyone's plans changed radically. That said, with a podcast, we have the luxury of recording remotely, and I was able to interview experts and community members about Waysquee Beach and the adaptation efforts underway. This podcast is being funded by the trustees, which is doing this as part of their communication efforts from a Massachusetts Office of Coastal Zone Management grant they received. So thanks to the trustees and to CZM for funding this series. We'll have two more episodes focusing on North Point Beach on Martha's Vineyard and Crane Beach, just north of Boston. These are just several of many land holdings that the trustees manage and preserve. You're going to go behind the scenes on how they are adapting their properties to climate change. We'll hear from experts and community members and get their thoughts on how these properties should be handled. This is our chance to go on the ground and hear how people value their coastal zone and what steps they're willing to take to protect and adapt these areas to existing and future impacts of climate change. This was a fascinating opportunity for me to talk with people from Martha's Vineyard, a place so many of us hear about, and how that island is approaching climate change. Yes, I was extremely disappointed I didn't get to go in person, but considering what's going on, I consider myself very lucky to get a chance to still talk with these folks and share their stories here on the podcast. And you, my listeners, will think you're there on the beach, eating a lobster roll. Okay, first off is Tom O'Shea, the Director of Coastal and Natural Resources at the Trustees, who's going to give us some background on the grant they received and what's going on at Waysquee Beach, before a few stakeholders join me to share their own experiences. All right, let's take a journey to the vineyard. Hey, Adapters, I'm here with Tom O'Shea. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Great to be here. So this is the beginning of the episode, and I want to touch base with you, and we're going to give some context of what we're talking about here. So first off, who are the trustees? This is the organization you work for. Who are you guys? The trustees, we are also known as the trustees of reservations, and we're the oldest land trust in America, and we are located in Massachusetts, and we have about 30 plus properties along our coastline. We have about 119 properties statewide, but over 30 along our coastline. And it makes us the largest private landowner of coastline in the state. And we have about 120 miles that we own or protect. And one of the places that we own and protect is down on Martha's Vineyard. We have 12 miles of beach and coastal banks there. And they're on the front lines of climate change. Some context to we're going to be talking about Waysquee Beach in this episode. This is a three-part episode that I'm doing with you. And what is the trustees' coastal vision, and why is it so important to have this vision for a land conservation organization? Right. It's really important because I think in, in the past, land conservation organizations have often thought about what they do today, caring about stewardship of their beautiful resources and properties that they preserve for permanent open space protection and for exceptional ecological, cultural significance, 
And for us, we now can't just think about today. We have to think about the future and far into the future. And we started to notice about five so years ago that we were witnessing a lot more changes to our coastline that were really unprecedented and even accelerating from storm events and, and erosion events. And so for us, the vision here was to begin to think about how we could help our properties, our places adapt to climate change. And what does adaptation mean that we had a real opportunity to showcase and highlight the work that we're doing, the choices we're making so that we can help others and other communities and our visitors and members understand how these places are changing and what we can do about it. On that note, talking about adaptation, what does coastal resilience mean to you? Yeah, so resilience is an interesting word. And you know, it's often used sometimes differently by people. And what we're thinking about here is resilience isn't stopping change. Resilience means you're allowing change, but you're also thinking about how you help the place bounce back from change. And change could be erosion. It could be storm events that, you know, really alter the, the places, these beaches, these coastal areas. And so how can we help them continue to function and function well to serve the various values that we have, whether it's habitat or public access and recreation, storm protection. And so, you know, helping these places continue to adapt and function is part of how we see resilience. And, you know, sometimes that requires interventions on our part, perhaps, and we're starting to explore that. Or maybe it means letting nature take its course. But I think that's really the question for us as an organization is when to intervene and when to allow things to to change. I think we have to think about resiliency, not only in how we act, but just sort of how does that system continue to function? I'm doing this podcast with you as part of a CZM grant that you guys got around these issues. Could you give a little bit of background? Who are they and what's this grant about? Sure. The Massachusetts Office of Coastal Zone Management is the lead state agency on coastal zone management. And that is a great thing for us in Massachusetts to have an agency that's very much involved in helping coastal landowners like the trustees adapt, coastal communities adapt to impacts from storm and climate and sea level rise. And so they have a grant program called the Coastal Resilience Grant. And that grant does fund just, in fact, I think this particular grant is the first of its kind to fund a communications approach for nonprofits to share what they're doing and involve stakeholders in adaptation on the coast. And so we're kind of, you know, in a way kicking that off, not only for this grant program, but even the trustees themselves and our own work on the coast. So that we're hoping that what we'll do will be create some communication, you know, messages and, and examples, you know, ways of communicating, whether it's podcasts such as this, that we can share with others so that there's some transferable learnings and maybe they'll start podcasts, you know, for their situations, whether it's a community or a landowner like ourselves. I like your thinking. Today, we're talking about Waysquee Beach. You're using Waysquee as a living laboratory to study the vulnerabilities of coastal banks and, and investigate potential adaptation methods. Why is this type of shoreline a focus and what does it face in the coming years and what can be done to protect it? Sure. Coastal banks like Waysquee, Doug, they're, they're really on the front lines of that exposure to storms and sea level rise impacts because these coastal banks are often ocean facing. So they're right there and they get a lot of wave energy that hits right on top of these coastal banks. And some of these coastal banks are not made of rock, in some cases not even made of sort of, you know, firmer type, of more dense gravel, but sand. And so Waysquee is one of these coastal banks. It's just glacial sand that's been deposited from thousands of years ago. 
And it's eroding away. And that means that everything on top of those banks in particular is also susceptible. So if let's say you had a house or uh, in our case, we have parking lots and we have some trails, those areas can be lost. And, and we were getting close to that just about you know five years ago or so when there was a breach and there was a lot of waves crashing against the bank. And there were landowners on either side of us that took actions. One took his took action and moved his house all the way back away from the banks after seeing that the bank stabilization efforts were were challenging. And for us, we were like, wow, what are we going to do here? We're going to have to move our parking lots. That and this is a place where people come to the beach, right? So this is an important spot where people enter the coast. There was another uh, homeowner nearby. I think got within 18 feet of his summer residence there. So these coastal banks are fragile. They're on the front lines. And we have to think about how do we make choices when we're close to these beautiful banks, right, that allow these great vistas from the top of them and and people live on these banks. What do we do? And so this is a really great opportunity, I think, for the trustees to kind of dive into this challenge a little bit because we're not the only ones across the coast of Massachusetts that are on these very sensitive, uh, erodible coastal banks. So the trustees organized a workshop that I was able to participate in remotely around Wayskui Beach. What was the purpose of the workshop and who was invited? What were you hoping to accomplish with it? Yeah, no, great question, Doug. Yeah, so these workshops were set up to basically take an opportunity to present, you know, an array of adaptation options and get some input and feedback and a discussion going with local stakeholders that have a stake in either the values that they care about there, perhaps they've done research about the site, maybe they're a nearby local community or a community official that's thinking about these challenges more broadly, and to really get different perspectives on, you know, what should we do here? Because at the end of the day, you know, it's going to require a fair amount of investment and time and energy and money. And also, if we don't intervene, you know, there are consequences potentially of loss to to people who fish there or come to recreate or live on similar coastal banks. So what we thought we'd do is we'll use these workshops as kind of a a way to highlight and illuminate more broadly how people react to climate change on coastal banks and what, you know, what are the feelings? What are the thoughts? What comes to mind? Where do people lean one way or the other? And once, you know, we got through the workshop, we had some, we generated some good discussions. We'll get into all of that. But I mean, you know, you heard everything from leave it alone. This is just historical trend. You can't stop it to others saying, well, maybe there's some more targeted things you can do to, um, you know, slow down erosion, preserve values, even use it as a learning platform, as you said, Doug, to help others see, okay, how does it work when you try to stabilize these banks naturally and what becomes of it? And so let's, you know, kind of use it as a living laboratory in action. So we heard a range of different things and, you know, you'll hear more from other people from the workshops. But I think what we want to do, take all that together, all that all those perspectives and start to uh, show, okay, if you were, you know, statewide in this similar situation, hear the perspectives you're going to get from people in the community. And it's really helpful because I think all of this is really about how we collectively think about adapting to change and climate. And, you know, we're just one landowner, but we're part of a bigger community. And were you overall happy with the participation, the responses, and do you feel it's going to drive some concrete decisions for the trustees in the years ahead? 
Yeah, I mean, I do think so. I, I think it is really was a good first robust effort to engage local perspectives in what I think it will help us because what we heard was, you know, let's not, I think, and this is to kind of give a, a, a high level you know, conclusion, but it was, well, I don't think for a landowner like the trustees, you need to protect all the banks and go to some great lengths to do that. I mean, you're kind of working against the tide, uh, literally and figuratively. And I think there was some thinking that, hey, you know, the trustees can really use this as a way to, you know, uh, be a demonstration area. And maybe you can do some things in the short term to really showcase how we stabilize banks in key areas. And also, you might want to think about relocating and, you know, moving back some of these parking lots and trails. So I think it's helped to coalesce our own internal thinking and strategy, Doug, and that, that's been really super valuable. And I guess if there was one thing sort of missing, and I hope we can get more of this, is the perspective that if you were a homeowner or a business and you're located on one of these banks and you've got, you know, your assets and your, you know, your home and residence and property and in many cases, your wealth, you know, located in such a vulnerable position, what would you do? And I think that, you know, the trustees don't have to face quite as much, in this case, at Wayskwe, that kind of level of risk. And it'd be great to see if we can figure out what, what would you do if it was a much greater risk. And we do have some, you know, landowners nearby that, that certainly face that choice for, in the, for a period of years. Doug, I guess that would be maybe another thing we could try to, to get more of in the future. Okay, and here's some feedback for me. I had to participate remotely, and originally I was going to be there in person. I was hoping I was going to be eating a lobster roll and getting <laughs> to hang out with it, but it didn't work out that way. Maybe next time. Next time, right. Tom, so coming up are some interviews with people who participated in the workshop and live and work around Wasquee Beach. Can you give us a bit more context about these people who I'm going to be talking to? Yeah, I, I think you're going to talk, talk about uh, with people that really know a lot about that site and they'll bring a community perspective, maybe a perspective about what it means to go out there and fish in the morning and, and be out in such a beautiful place and having access to this type of place. You, you may get some perspectives on how far should we go in protecting, you know, a place that is, is at such risk of loss and erosion and what would be the kind of, you know, things in their mind would would say, yeah, go to this level to act and stabilize the banks or, or retreat. And, you know, I think it'll be great to, to get a much deeper and, you know, I think maybe a little bit more of a deeper insight into, you know, what people think is the future here. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping you'll get some really good local flavor and, and perspective and also historical perspective, right? Because I think, you know, maybe some people have seen this happen in their lifetime at various stages. Others have said they've done historical research and, you know, this has been going on for hundreds, if not millennia in these places. So let's accept change and let's plan for it. All right, Tom, looking forward to sharing these conversations that I had. And I'm going to have you back at the end of this episode and we're going to do a wrap up. So I'll talk to you soon. Wonderful. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Doug. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Rick Shifter. Hi, Rick. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. How are you? I'm doing well. All right. Let's talk about what's going on on Martha's Vineyard. But first off, are you a permanent resident? What's your situation with the island there? No, um, I have a summer home here on Chappaquiddick, which is an island off of Martha's Vineyard. But it's a, I say summer home, but we use it year round, but not permanent residence here. 
So are the numbers actually pretty down with people visiting because of COVID-19? You know, it doesn't appear to be the case. I'm sure it's down some, but I think a lot of people came out here a little bit earlier, seeing the vineyard as a good place to go to be quarantined. And I think there's some expectation that the the tourist crowd will be down some, but it seemed reasonably busy over uh, Memorial Day weekend. Okay. So how long have you been going out to this home? We purchased the property in 2001. Okay. So you've been there a while. And I know you did an interview with Eric from the Nature Conservancy. Um, You didn't participate in the trustees workshop, but you did the interview, right? That's correct. Do you have any relationship with the trustees? Are you a member or? Yes, I'm a member of the trustees and I also serve on the uh, Chappie Steering Committee, which is an advisory committee to the trustees. We're talking about the Barrier Beach and the issues of the bluffs, you know, being damaged by storm events and how local residents are sort of really responding. And the trustees, we're having these conversations about what are some of the tough decisions everyone's going to have to make in regards to, okay, are people having to migrate inland and such? And you have your own unique story. And I want to dig into that kind of quickly is you, you actually had to move your home. That's correct. So why? What was happening there? Like, could you kind of... Give us visually, how close were you to the beach? Was it Norton Beach? Way squee. And it's, it's a little bit tough to visualize, but Chappaquiddick most of the time is connected to Martha's Vineyard across a two and a half mile spit referred to as, as Norton Point. And uh, Chappaquiddick is at the southeast corner of Martha's Vineyard and the spit runs from Martha's Vineyard on the west to Chappaquiddick on the east. And what happened was a breach occurred on the spit, which, you know, can vary in width from 20 to 50 yards or something. And and this uh, breach occurred in uh, 2007. And what happens when that breach occurs is there's erosion of uh, the spit to the east to Chappaquiddick. But then the spit rebuilds itself by accreting from the west. So it accretes from the Martha's Vineyard side and extends across, but instead of connecting at the closest point of Chappaquiddick, which would be the southwest corner of Chappaquiddick, it continues to just grow and run parallel to the south shore of Chappaquiddick and actually only reconnect at the far eastern end of Chappaquiddick at the point called Wastewheat. And in that period of time, where the spit is migrating parallel to the south shore of Chappaquiddick, it creates a channel, and the channel has the water rushing through it fairly quickly and basically shaving off the southern portion of Chappaquiddick. And that's a process that continues until the spit reconnects at the eastern end of Chappaquiddick, and that ends the erosion process because the water is no longer flowing through it. And then that channel just naturally refills with sand and you go from a point where essentially the water crashing against bluffs at one point, And then, you know, a couple of years later, you've got 50 to hundred yards of beach that has replaced it. This breach occurred in 2007 and all this process was unfolding with, uh, with no damage to the, the bluff where we were. And our home was 300 feet away from the bluff. And, you know, at that stage we had substantial beach in front of us. But by 2012, and I would say it was sort of April of 2012, we had at this point now essentially lost the beach in front of us, and we started to see erosion of the bluff. And, uh, you know, initially we thought that 
you know, if we lose 20, 30 feet of bluff, that's not going to be a problem. We still have plenty of room. You know, it was something to, to worry about, but not to be particularly anxious about. But then by August of 2012, we had days where we would lose 20 or 30 feet in a single day. And it was now becoming increasingly obvious that unless some miracle happened, you know, we could be in serious trouble. And and so we consulted with the uh, coastal geologists who came out and uh, viewed the situation. And and we asked whether they thought we needed to move the house or, you know, would the house be threatened in its current location? And they said, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. You know, we don't know. And that was not a particularly comforting response. And so we talked to one of the engineers who helped with the construction of the house. And we did build the house after we purchased the property. And he suggested that we explore the possibility of actually moving the house. And and so that's what we ended up doing. It was a very complicated process, but we did find a firm that uh, expressed a great deal of confidence in their ability to, to move it. And that the... As an interim step, we did put up some temporary protection along the bluff in the form of very large sand-filled burlap bags that weighed about half a ton each. Hmm. Um, you needed a crane to put them in place, and that that slowed the process some, but it was clearly not a permanent solution that was only intended to be temporary, and it helped give us some time, and after we went through the whole process of uh, identifying a firm that could do the work and getting the various approvals required from governmental authorities. We commenced the process in uh, March 2012. And I don't know how much you want me to explain about the process. The, The actual physical move took place in July. And then we were back in the house um, in November of 2013, by which time, coincidentally, the, uh, the breach had not yet closed, it had gotten close enough to closure that the speed with which the water was sort of moving through that channel I described had slowed, that the erosion had um, slowed significantly. And then by the time the, you know, the breach closed, we had obviously completed the the house move and, and we were once again on what we hope to be safe ground. A kind of a, a radical approach to dealing with encroaching seas. And in regards to like your own work with the trustees and what's going on and what they were trying to do with that workshop, and I know you didn't intend, but this idea of rising seas, you moved your house, but is there that concern? It's like, all right, this buys us 50 years, 30 years. Did that kind of come into the decision-making? Well, you know, the, the odd thing is what we subsequently learned is this is part of an historic pattern of the breach occurring in that spit. And then, you know, over a lengthy cycle, erosion occurs, it reattaches, and then you have accretion. Of course, you know, you can have a beach accrete, you can't have a bluff accrete. You'd need another ice age for that to occur. You know, this is not a problem caused by rising seas per se. It it is caused by this other cyclical phenomenon that appears to occur a couple times a century. We hear lots about 100-year floods happening, happening every other year. So, you know, there's there's no guarantee that we're protected from any for any length of time at all. And it's not a situation where lots of other coastal locations are subject to sort of ongoing erosion. And you can see, you know, maybe it's a few feet every year, but it's you you'll know over a decade, you know, how much you could expect to lose, you know, or give or take. Um some percentage, but in our situation, it actually remains stable when it's not in the 
erosion cycle, you know, but when it's in the erosion cycle, it's very dramatic. In answer to your question, it, you know, we don't know how long we bought um, by this. And as I was quoted in the press at the time this took place, that I said, I'm sure, you know, this issue will arise again, but I hope it's a problem my grandchildren have to deal with. And my daughter suggested she, uh, that I should have said that I hope my grandchildren's grandchildren would have to deal with it. But certainly no assurance that, the, you know, we'll be able to wait multiple generations before having this problem again. And I think that the big unknown is whether, you know, rising sea levels will exacerbate the problem and, and increase the frequency of this cycle. But you know, we'll, we'll see. In regards to like you making the decision about, okay, we need to move the home or not. Let's say you decided not to move the home. The bluff continued to deteriorate and your home actually just went into the sea. Are you in a, like, I'm curious about, you know, people and insurance and such, would they have covered such a thing or you're, you're liable? You just lose the home. The latter. I don't think our insurance policy is exceptional, but the standard, I think, flood exclusion applies to erosion as well. And it's, you know, I think there's most homeowners policies specifically exclude floods and there's therefore a national flood insurance program, which is capped at, I think, at $130,000, you know, perhaps or something like that. This is not something that is a practical matter you can insure against. And regarding this experience that you went through and your relationship with the trustees, and they're really look, exploring at what are some practical adaptation actions and the cost benefit of doing these things. You, your story must be a, a great case study as people talk about these things, right? Are you finding that, that that's coming up? As you said, I didn't participate in the workshop, but I did um, participate in some discussions um, with the trustees prior to that, which in in the course of that conversation, yes, there was some discussion of some practical uh, things that perhaps could be addressed and all for it. And I think we have some uh, shared interests along those lines. You know, the, the trustees lost a lot more property than I did. They just didn't have structure that was threatened by it. But I, I think there, there could be ways to adapt that's um, certainly in our mutual interests. Do you have a favorite spot on the beach? <laughs> well, it uh, depends on where the fish are. <laughs> Great answer. Great answer. Okay. But we're right, right by our house is uh, two currents come together. It's, it's, so there's a significant rip that's created, which means it's off limits for swimming, but it's a great place for bait to get trapped and fish to be attracted. So it ends up being a very nice fishing spot. All right. Well, great. Thanks for your time. Great chatting with you, Doug. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Tara Barden. Hi, Tara. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. How are you? Doing great. What's your relationship with what the trustees is doing here? I am a senior coastal geologist at the Woods Hole Group here on Cape Cod, and we were hired to do an alternatives analysis for some of the trustees, Martha's Vineyard sites, looking at vulnerabilities now and in the future related to shoreline erosion, climate change, sea level rise, and helping them to come up with some adaptations to you know, help battle the chronic erosion out there of the beaches, the coastal banks, you know, the natural areas that they utilize for, you know, recreation and that provide a lot of habitat for a whole bunch of different wildlife, including a number of state-listed endangered species. Could you give just a brief explanation of what the Woods Hole Group is? 
The Woods Hole Group is an environmental consulting firm, mostly focused on marine, coastal, oceanographic analysis and studies. We do everything from beach nourishment projects to deep water, deep sea buoys, looking at waves, tides, and currents. We do estuary studies. We you know, we do a whole range of different things involving the marine and coastal environment. It's an array of geologists, coastal engineers, oceanographers, um, different types of scientists. And do you get out to Martha's Vineyard a lot for what you're doing with them? I do. I spend most of my time in the vineyard. The majority of my projects are on the vineyard and have been on the vineyard for about the past 20 years. I've been at Woods Hole Group going on 22 years now. And for the past 20 years, most of my work has been out there. So I'm really familiar with the island. Okay. So you don't live on the island, but you just go out there frequently. Yep. I live in Falmouth, jump right on the commuter ferry, which is, you know, right here in town, can be over on the island in 20 minutes. Oh, wow. I remember seeing you give a presentation as part of that workshop that the trustees hosted. What was your sense of that workshop? thought that it went really well. We got some good feedback from so, some of the local homeowners out there and some of the other folks that were actually on the call. You know, we had follow-up with some of the folks that had joined in. And, and we did have some, some interactive stuff going on, but I thought, I thought it was really, really good. And people raised some good questions about, you know, specifics of the project, about the oversand vehicle access that's out there and, you know, the barrier beach processes. And, you know, a lot of people commented on how it's such a natural area and why would you want to do things that would change that natural process. And, you know, everybody had a different perspective on it. There was some pretty bright folks on that call who have had a lot of experience on the vineyard. So I thought that that was interesting. And I actually enjoyed listening to what they had to say about how these areas have changed over time. In interviews that I've been doing, there's this tension that you, you need, if there's any management that's needed, you, you're looking at short term and these are like, going to be benefits to the people, but then longer term and what's, you know, we talked about in that workshop is what sea level rise might mean. And so that tension of, are the costs worth it if in the long term these things are going to change radically? What, what was your sense of that? Yeah, and this is, honestly, this is a question that comes up on, along any coastline when you're considering doing a project. So all of these projects are temporary. Unless you're doing some sort of hard structure, coastal engineering structure in an area, all the soft stabilization, green infrastructure, living shoreline type stuff, it, it is temporary. So there's always that, you, you always have to weigh the cost with the benefit. You know, these areas are highly used. The vineyard is a, is a big tourist destination. You know, a lot of the revenue from the island comes from tourists coming to the island and having access to these beautiful natural areas. You know, these sites are interesting because the county is involved, DCR is involved. That's basically parks and rec for the state. The trustees are involved. There are a number of different home, uh, say homeowners, property owners that have a stake in these particular properties that we studied. But with sea level rise, and especially with accelerated sea level rise, you know, even to maintain some of these features from a recreational standpoint in the short term, you know, some implementation has to be done. For instance, the overseeing vehicle access. At this point in time, it's still usable, but it's it's becoming not usable in the near future because there's been so much erosion and overwash of the area that, it, you know, during the big storm events, the waves come in and they've basically leveled it. And now it's 
transitioning into a bird habitat. You always have to weigh the cost with the benefit. The OSV ramp generates, that's the overseeing vehicle ramp at Norton Point West. And that generates a tremendous amount of money for the trustees of the county, which then goes back into, you know, maintenance and all those other types of things. It's a, it's a revenue pot there, but it's now because of sea level rise and coastal erosion, they're losing that ramp and it's transitioning more into a bird habitat. This is the second year in a row that they've actually had plovers. I don't know if it's plovers or terns who have tried to nest there. I don't think that either one of those nests were successful. You know, it's always a balance between the cost, the natural processes Habitat has a big play in all of these types of things right now because of the endangered species being protected. You know, if you if you have infrastructure on your property, you know, houses and buildings and all that type of thing, then, you know, you may be more apt to do a project because you have infrastructure that you need to protect. It's pretty natural out here. You know, there's really not much out there other than some gravel parking lots, some walking trails, those types of things. So, you know, it, it's going to be a delicate balance between how much money gets put into these interventions versus just letting things happen naturally over time. So you've been going out to the island a, a, a long time. What's your sense, and I guess the more the broader community about longer term, you think about climate change, about some of the adaptation actions that are going to happen. Do you feel like you're hearing any chatter among the people outside the, you know, let's say the trustees workshop that people are concerned about this? Yeah, the town is definitely concerned you know, the nice part about the vineyard is that other than along the harbor, a lot of the shorelines are natural. There's not a tremendous amount of development along the shoreline, but they do have, you know, state road that connects Oak Bluffs to Edgartown. That has been threatened in the past. The town and the county have done a really, really good job of doing beneficial reuse of dredge material to build the beach up. They've got a beautiful beach now that runs all along Sylvia State Beach from Oak Bluffs down into Edgartown, where they have pumped sand up there. We've even done some projects where we've trucked some sand in and we've we've created beautiful dunes and they have a really nice, fairly wide beach along there. But it's been a project that's been in the works for 25 or 30 years. You know, and the town definitely has concern. The town became MVP, Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Town, last year. Right now, we're doing a vulnerability assessment of all of the town assets for the town, looking at what structures are in flood zones, you know, what are the critical structures in flood zones, and coming up with adaptations for them to get things out of the flood zone, especially looking at future 2030, 2050, 2070, and trying to help them plan for the future. So, you know, the town has a great dredging and beach nourishment program. They've got about 40 dredging and beach nourishment sites where they actively dredge the navigation channels and they they put sand in all of the locations each year where they think that they need it the most. And they're active and they're, the program is always growing. And um, I do a lot of work with them on that program. And they're very, very proactive about you know, trying to maintain their beaches for recreation, you know, in protection of upland infrastructure and resources. So I think that a lot of people work for a lot of local homeowners on the island also who have properties that are in the coastal zone. And, you know, it seems like everybody in the town, I mean, people all across the island, but especially Edgar Town, because, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty densely developed, a lot of year-round people there. And they do a really, really good job of trying to maintain their beaches. 
what's next for you in any involvement with what the trustees are going to be doing and what sort of came out of that workshop? So basically for the project that we worked on, we were hired to actually not necessarily come up with recommendations, but come up with options for implementation. So basically, these are the different sites that we have, you know, using all of the existing data that you have, including the coastal vulnerability assessment that Woods Hole Group did for the trustees last year. You know, can you tell us which sites are the most vulnerable right now? And based on that data and knowing which sites are the most vulnerable, can you tell us what type of options there are for providing protection to those areas, whether it be some toe stabilization using fiber rolls, all natural, beach nourishment, dune restoration, beach grass, those types of things. So we looked at all 12 miles of coastline, came up with the three areas that we thought were the most vulnerable over time. That was Waste Green Point, Norton Point Beach, the Barrier Beach, and the Norton Point Oversand Vehicle Ramp. And then we provided a list of different types of alternatives that they could implement in any one of those locations that would help to sustain those locations, you know, sustain the habitat. And we looked at a number of different ones, and then we came up with costs for each of those. So we didn't necessarily make recommendations, hey, you should do this here. But we more said, hey, these are the things that you can do here. And this is what the permitting process is going to be like. You know, this is what the costs are going to be. This is how long it's potentially going to last. So we gave them all the information that they needed to to make educated decisions about whether or not they would move forward with one or two or however many one of these interventions that they saw fit. Do you have a favorite spot on Wastequeet Beach? Uh, You know, I Every time I go out there, I'm totally amazed. And I had said to Tom O'Shea that when we did the drive-through, so basically we came over the Dyke Bridge on Chappaquiddick and we started at Leland Beach and we went all the way to the south and all the way around Wayskree down along Norton Point Beach. And we came out at the other end of Norton Point Beach at the west and the oversand vehicle access to get back out onto the to the mainland. And it honestly has been a a bucket list item. I have been on the island working for 20 years and I never, ever had had the opportunity. A lot of those years, there was no access along Wayskwee and Norton Point. And so I had basically told them that that was one of the best days I've ever had in the field. 25 years of being a coastal geologist, that was one of my best days ever in the field to actually be out there and driving along that and, and thinking about how that whole process happened over time, how grain by grain of sand, that whole Norton Point barrier beach extended all the way from the West, you know, more than a mile like it just deposited grain by grain and came down and attached to Wayskree. And where it attached to Wayskree, with a barrier beach attached to Wayskree, you know, there's this really neat little water body that sits between the barrier beach and Wayskree Point. And I can honestly say that it's one of my favorite places that I have ever been. I mean, it's just a beautiful spot. When you go over to Wayskree and you park in one of those parking lots, you walk along the walking trails and you have such an incredible view of the ocean and the beach. You know, you're up high in the top of the bluff. The trails are fairly close to the edge of the bluff right now. You know, I've been seeing this area for a long time. So for me to go out there right now, knowing that, you know, 10 years ago, the shifter house was falling into the ocean. And now there's a beach out in front that's, you know, four or 500 feet wide. You know, it's just, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, the natural process is, 
it's, it's really incredible. So, you know, my favorite part is probably when you stand on the beach at Wayskui, knowing that five or six years ago, there was no beach there. It was a channel. And now it's this absolutely gorgeous barrier beach. It's pretty amazing. It's a pretty amazing spot. Tara, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your perspective. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Chris Kennedy. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thanks so much for uh, for having me on. Well, it's my pleasure, and I want to hear all about Martha's Vineyard. But first off, you work for the trustees. What do you do with them? Well, Doug, I am the uh, Down Island Stewardship Manager, which is a fancy way of saying I'm the beach manager for the trustees here on Martha's Vineyard, but uh, but particularly on Chappaquiddick Island and Norton Point Beach, which is a very long narrow barrier beach that connects the main island of Martha's Vineyard to Chappaquiddick Island. Would you consider Wayskui part of the area that you manage? Yes, it is. Yes, Wayskui is part of Chappaquiddick Island. In fact, it's the extreme southeast corner, and it's a fascinating place where the waters of Muskegon Channel, which is the uh, body of water that separates Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, those waters primarily flow north and south, and Wayskui is uh, at the southeast corner, and it is the intersection, if you will, of the currents that flow from the south side al- along the south side of the island called the Longshore Current. So it's a interesting location where the waters collide from Muskegon Channel and the Atlantic Ocean and brings about lots of changes. So how long have you been doing this work? And I mean, you, you live on the island, right? Yes. In fact, I live at Wayskui. My family and I have been here for, well, I've been with the trustees for 32 years. Wow. Uh, we've lived here at Wayskui for the past seven years, and uh, we live here year-round. So it's been, been a, a terrific experience for us. So we're talking about some of the things that are impacting the beach there. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about how to adapt to climate change. And so the trustees hosted a workshop that you were able to participate in, and it's looking at some of the options of the, for the beaches there. What did you think of the workshop? I thought it was really informative. It was a wonderful opportunity for us to to hear from our experts at the uh, Woods Hole Group, which is a well, well-known uh, consulting group at Woods Hole, Massachusetts, as well as to hear input from many of our neighbors, from some of our community members, government officials, as far as their thoughts, as far as uh, climate change, sea level rise, and the impact that it's going to have for us, especially here at Wayskui, as well as at uh, Norton Point. So it was really, to me, it was it was an eye-opening experience. Right. And so you're there, right there on the resource. And if you look at some of the, the models or the scenarios or the future, you know, I guess, speculation of what's going to happen there, you must have been <laughs> thinking, wow, this is going to make my job harder. Yeah, no, there's no question about it that it's, you know, what we're seeing here at Wayskui, as well as at Norton Point, is really the unfolding of an incredible situation with sea level rise rising much faster than we thought it was going to rise, as well as climate change, which is going to bring in, and it does bring in, species of wildlife that we haven't seen before. And the requirements that they have as far as being able to feed, to nest, and to rest on their uh, migration south. So it is, you know, it's like trying to juggle 15 balls in the air all at once. And it's you know, but it makes the job very interesting. But it is the job is far more complex now than it than it has been in the past three decades for me. 
were there any surprises in what people supported? Because one of the common themes was just what are the costs associated with this? Should we invest now, even though potentially with sea level rise, it's going to sort of be all for naught? But you, gotta, you, you have to think about short term when you're dealing with people. No, absolutely. You know, and, and you know, the, the one thing that really kind of struck me during the uh, workshops was so many people are thinking in terms of impacts to me today. How is sea level rise and how is erosion? How is that impacting me and my experience on the beach today, this year, next month, this summer? And the, the interesting thing is with sea level rise and with climate change, we really have to be thinking long term. And it really, when it comes to cost, you know, some things we could throw a lot of money at short term adaptations, short term management decisions. But in the long run, does that make the most sense? And that's part of what the workshop really looked at was what makes sense, not only short term, but more importantly, long term for the trustees, as well as for those of us who live on this uh, island off the coast of Massachusetts. All right. So you, you participate in the workshop and obviously very relevant to the work that you do, but you go back to your office. How do you digest that information? How does it affect the how you, what you're doing on the ground there? Sure, sure. Well, I think the one thing that we have to look at is there are some critical places on this beach that really have to be protected at, you know, without really concerning ourselves first and foremost with the cost. So, for instance, the entrance to Norton Point Beach in Edgartown Norton Point Beach provides this really vital link between the main island of Martha's Vineyard and the island of Chappaquiddick. It's a, it's the land bridge, if you will. So for many, many people, it is a critical access route from the main portion of Martha's Vineyard to Chappaquiddick Island, where they live, where they work. So that's, cr- that's clearly one of the things that we have to look at is we need to, the entrance to Norton Point right now, for instance, is jeopardized because of massive amounts of erosion, overwash. So we have to look at that very differently than another section of beach, for instance, at Wastewheat Point, where we have several hundred acres of open open land behind the cliffs at Wastewheat. So in some areas, we can allow sea level uh, rise as well as climate change. It really, you know, if it, if it means we lose some of that land, we lose that land. Whereas at the entrance to Norton Point, where it's so vital, not only for wildlife resources, but also for, for humans to access Chappaquiddick Island. That's an area where we have to decide, I think. And, and one of the things that we heard in the workshops, you need to protect those most critical strategic areas. And, and so that was very, very helpful to, uh, to hear. And I think it really confirmed or reconfirmed our own thinking that, you know, some areas you have to retreat, other areas you really have to stand firm. So you've been there a long time, and regarding – you must interact with the public there, and it's probably a very interesting demographic, long-term residents, but a lot of tourists, probably very sophisticated people. What's your sense mm-hmm. of what they think about climate change? Are they even thinking about that long-term for the island? You know, I don't think that the – in totality that people really are thinking long-term with regards to climate change and sea level rise. I think they're – again, as I said earlier, I think they – they really view its impact to me today. How is it impacting me today? Is it giving me access to the beach? Is it allowing me to be able to, to drive uh, to my home on Chappaquiddick? So I think that one of the things that we really need to stress now and in the future is that long is that is that sea level rise is here 
for a long time. So we need to begin to think today as far as what are those changes? How are they going to impact not only us, but our kids, our grandchildren? And we need to start thinking about, you know, the the actions we take today are going to have long term impact. So they need to be well thought out and they need to be taken in terms of the long term point of view. Do you have a favorite spot on Wasquee Beach? Well, absolutely. Wasquee Point is by far my most favorite spot on uh, Martha's Vineyard. In fact, uh, I'm I'm happy to say that in all of the trustees, many, many holdings across the state, Wasquee Point to me is the most most breathtaking. Doug, I'm, I may be one of those strange people that I love change. I love to see, you know, wake up in the morning, walk down to the beach, and I never know what I'm going to experience at Wasquee because the beach itself is changing so much. And it really it's a it's a world of of turmoil. It's a world of chaos, but it's also very structured. Let me give you an example. Last week, I traveled around Wasquee Point and we ha- probably had about 200 feet of beach between the upland and the edge of the water. I went by there early, earlier today and we might have 15 feet. All of that beach was lost in the ter- in terms of two weeks. Now, Next week, it could be completely different. We may have that 200 feet of beach back again. That is such an amazing thing to be able to watch, not long term, but short term. I don't know of any other place in the in the Northeast where you see that kind of of change in the landscape of, of our beaches as we do at Wasquee Point. All right, Chris, that was great. I appreciate that. Thanks for coming on. Great, Doug. Thanks for having me. Okay, Tom, you're back. So we just heard from a variety of different voices talking about these issues at Wasquee Beach. What do you want the public to take away from these findings, from the workshop and everything that you're doing here? And so we had the people that participated in the actual workshop itself. But what what do you want the public to take away from this? I want the public to take away that we and all of us are at a pivotal moment in time where I think we have some time to make some choices that are thoughtful, that we, you know, can find a way to, I guess, signal how we're going to respond to climate change. And what we do today will set the tone for tomorrow. It will sort of chart the course for the future. And I think that these discussions today are, will be sort of critical in setting us on a trajectory that maybe is a new way for all of us to be thinking about what it means to live on the coast and what it means to live with the future of climate change and, and how we respond. I mean, it's really about choices. And each choice has a has a trade-off, and this is the time now to start thinking through what those choices are. And I mean, in a positive way, too, because I think we have some time to make good choices, and in doing so, I think we're, we're really putting the next generation in a better position in terms of what they'll face and their challenges. So I'm hopeful. So what's next for the trustees regarding Whiskey Beach? And I just want to put out there, I, I certainly appreciate the fact that you've got this grant for CZM that you guys, the trustees, thought a podcast would be a good medium. And to their credit, this is something they want to fund. And so I, I think this is excellent information. I think a lot of my listeners are going to be thrilled with what you guys are doing there. But again, kudos to you guys looking at the podcast to share this information. But sort of what's next for you guys? Yeah, what's next for us? Well, I mean, I first wanted to echo your comments about, you know, CZM and the grant, because without their support, 
and funding and really giving momentum to these kinds of ideas. We just couldn't do it. None of us can. I mean, we really need that kind of support. And CZM, I think, you know, understands that the trustees touch many people through our properties and our programs. I mean, we have a half million people come to our beaches each year. And so it's a great partnership that we've had with CZM. And we, we're really thankful that they have given us this opportunity to really think through the future of these sites, use them as sort of models for how you know other communities and, and other coastal landowners can respond. Because, I mean, that's what this is all about. We can't do it alone. So let's transfer and, and make known you know how we're all dealing with these challenges. So great that CZM has been there f- to help us and the community engage more deeply into, you know, a place like Waysque, which I think is a great example statewide of the challenges that are being faced at these types of coastal areas. Like, and, you know, as we look forward, I actually think this uh, grant has helped us, um, you know, start to set forth a trajectory for how we will respond. And I think we've also now got some buy-in and at least some some thoughts and perspectives that has raised the the, the awareness and the engagement of people um, about what we're doing. So really, to me, I mean, we're at a new perch now as a result of this grant and super, super happy about that and excited to move beyond this. And I would also say that the podcast is a, is a really great way to get a much richer discussion and conversation that we can also share and that people can think more deeply about. So thank you, Doug, for, for being a part of this. Last question, and this is what I've asked of all my guests, and I want you to answer is, what is your favorite spot at Waysquee Beach? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I, it's funny because as we've been talking, I've been thinking about the place. <laughs> so, you know, if you there's two spots. I mean, I know you want one spot, but the first spot I think of is at the top. There's a little lookout trail and you can look over the, the banks and look out to just amazing um, coastline and just the, the ocean. I mean, just, you're, you know, it's a great feeling to just be at the edge of this coastal bank and you feel like in some ways you're at the edge of the world right and it just takes your mind and brings you to a whole different place and experience beautiful gorgeous plus the scenes you know in the evening you know sunset sunrises just beautiful up there i mean it's really you're really at the edge of the of massachusetts in in many ways when you're at that spot and then i would also say if you're down at the bottom of the banks there's this really nice little like swimming pole or swimming area where the sort of water is kind of trapped in a little pool area down at the base of the banks and that's just a really fun place to to go and cool off and um just wonderful spot and you know also i'll just say that it's a really historic area and so you know there's been a, a long native american presence in the area and associated with these types of coastal banks so you feel like you're also brought back in time and you know you real appreciation that other people and other communities long before us have enjoyed similar experiences okay tom it's been a real pleasure working with you and sharing these stories and thanks for the work that you're doing and thanks for coming on thank you doug been a pleasure Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. What an awesome experience for me to talk with the people of Martha's Vineyard and the trustees and to learn what they are doing with coastal adaptation. I'm very encouraged by their efforts. Adaptation is sausage making, and you got to hear firsthand how these communities in Massachusetts are approaching climate adaptation. We have two more episodes in this series, one focusing on Crane Beach and one focusing on North Point Beach back on Martha's Vineyard. Thanks again to all those who participated and thanks to the trustees and to the Massachusetts Office of Coastal Zone Management for funding this episode. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.